Greetings, I am Erin Patton, metaphysical master in the millennial age, and it is my life's purpose to guide you and organizations along an enlightened path. So I invite you to sit comfortably and tune in as I welcome you to the Meta Business Millennial, where we get the real conversations you won't get in the boardroom so that we understand this is exactly the path we need to be on in order to grow, evolve, and thrive. Greetings, I am Erin Patton, and welcome to the Meta Business Millennial Podcast. I am joined here today by a special guest, actually who I met back in March at, in Austin at South by Southwest on a fortuitous encounter, if you will. And it was just an opportunity that I couldn't miss to bring her onto the show, Miss um, Jessica Crean. She is a game designer, an immersive experience designer, and a really brilliant uh, play experience creator, if I, if I may say that. And I'm really happy to have her join us on our show today. So welcome, Jessica. Thanks, Erin. I'm delighted to be here. Great, great. And one thing that I have to share that really attracted me to you and the work that you do is your focus on play. And, you know, part of my mentor, Max, who's actually been on the show before, his motto is play, fun, and love. And when he first told me that, I was just like, okay, that's pretty simple. But in reality, like, I didn't realize how I had actually forgotten how to play until I had my son, who's now three years old. And of course, all he does all day is play. (laughs) And asked me to play with him and do these things with him. And it was very challenging in the beginning to like get on the floor and like, get these little figures and you know what I'm saying? And I really would love for you to share your your journey to this playful existence because gaming obviously is a huge industry. It's a business, but fundamentally it's, it's a very simple concept. So I'd love for you to explore that with us. Yeah, that's such a great question. No one who knew me as a child would have ever thought that I would be a game designer. It would have been probably the last thing, the last career ever that they would put me in because I was a really, really serious kid. Yeah. Um, I, used to, I used to, I was so sensitive. Like I'm still sensitive, but I, I know what to do with my sensitivity now. Now it feels mostly like a, a superpower, but as a yeah. kid, it's just, the world is overwhelming. And so I, I, uh, I took the world really seriously and so when, when, especially when change would happen, I had a really hard time processing that or accepting that that was, that it was potentially a good thing. I used to cry on my brother's birthday. I used to cry when he got his hair cut, just any, any change felt sort of like the world was ending um, mm-hmm. and that there was, like, what could I possibly ground myself in? And so there was, I definitely did not have a playful attitude towards change as a kid, even though I played all the time, I've had a whole world of imaginary friends and was very, very much in the world of make-believe. But when it came to the outside world, it was much more challenging for me. And when I was little, I mean, like, you know, you have a three-year-old kids are really funny. Uh, Like I have never met a kid who isn't funny to an adult. And so when I would say things that were funny, my parents would laugh and I would start crying and, uh, and I would be so upset. And I would say like, why are you, why are you laughing at me? I'm serious at you, which would make them laugh even more. And so I just took everything as if the the stakes were incredibly high at every possible moment. Oh, wow. 
And so there was, yeah, the, it was not, um, it was not something that I had any dreams of making a career out of as a kid. And I think growing up, I have, I've really had to sort of tackle that side of myself. Um, that is, that still has that inner really serious child who believes that the world is a really important, impactful and meaningful uh, place for meaningful experiences. And and so I think it's been a real journey for me to come to a space of the way in which we can make the world meaningful, the way in which we live into that meaning and purpose is by playing, is by feeling loose and creative about the world. And I think part of what draws me to the ex exploration of play is that it's hard for me sometimes. Mm. Um, and I like a challenge and challenges are, are spaces that I feel playful and feel like there is a, a possibility that that anything can happen um, inside of a, of, a, of a challenge space. And so figuring out what play means for me has been a very, very long journey. Um, and I'm still feel like I'm just constantly broadening that circle. It just keeps going out, sort of like dropping a stone into water. I keep finding new ways to play and new ways to, to be playful in the world. Um, so that sort of skips over the interesting middle bit of going on that journey, but those are definitely the bookends of really, really serious kid to a person who has a deep and dedicated practice to finding joy and play in the seriousness of the world, which is a lot of the work that I do now. Wow. You know, I never would have guessed that because, I mean, and it makes perfect sense though, because generally the areas in our childhood where we have the most trauma or challenge, if you will, oftentimes are our areas of, of our biggest gifts and genius. And it's almost like our own, what I call the outer child's way of protecting that inner child, if you will, kind of that self-sabotage to keep us from ourself, if you will. And, and, I, and I love that you also were able to kind of navigate that through this challenge, which I hope that we can dig a little bit deeper into that middle kind of of the bookend part. So what, what to date, which you say has been some of the most challenging aspects of exploring that play, because going from someone who, were you a gamer growing up or like, we're okay. So like obviously having to learn how to be a game designer, like you're, I mean, obviously you're a woman, like this is definitely like a male dominated tech heavy space. Like there's so many, I would say barriers to entry here, but you've seemed to have overcome them all. So I, I mean, you gotta let us know a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It really does feel like a massive journey. And it also feels like it's happened pretty fast. There were a lot of sort of slow build up steps. And then really only in the last six or seven years, my, the pieces sort of fell into place around what yeah. game design and play mean for me and how, and this sort of dedication to, to this field has sort of everything clicked. Um, mm. But I think one of the biggest challenges to, to getting there is perfectionism and this yeah. feeling like I need to have the answers and that if there are other people relying on me, I have to come deeply, profoundly, and perfectly prepared to every situation. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of the antithesis of play. It makes all kinds of assumptions about what others need. There's no space for emergence in there. Uh, and it, it is it is control. And so I think there's some ways in which control is necessary and beautiful. I came from, I came direct, sort of directly to the game space from the theater space where I was okay. mostly doing a lot of directing. And so as a director, that is the top of the hierarchy. You are the person that things filter through. You are the person talking to the playwright, talking to the actors, talking to the producer. So there's this real fulcrum uh, aspect to that. So that that was this sort of balancing act that I was always doing between the, the creative and the entrepreneurship side of that. 
and I was keeping it all together all the time. And so if you enter into a play space with that mentality, if you're keeping it all together, there's no space for anyone else to bring anything new. And so I think, uh, and certainly like as a director, you're always working with there, there's deep collaboration in there. So I don't want to make it, uh, you know, there's certainly not a world in which I was like, Hey, now you stand here and say this, like, there's a lot of collaboration and give and take, but on the whole, that hierarchy makes, uh, makes that sort of traditional theater space really different from gameplay because mm-hmm. inside of gameplay, everybody is a player. Yeah. So we're really making space for that. And that is, that was the big puzzle piece that, that fell in for me when I, when I started studying game design was that this is a space where everybody can be emergent and this can be a space for everyone to find challenges and solve problems and be cooperative. Um, And that was the thing that really, really clicked in for me was that I can design a space for others to feel emergence and be able to test their own limits and have challenges in a way that I also find so playful and delightful. And I think a lot of that came from seeing theater and feeling uh, feeling pretty uninspired. I think there's beautiful theater out there. This is not a blanket statement about theater. I still make theater, but watching it passively felt disconnecting to me. Mm. And I wanted to I wanted to to feel like it did when I was in the room working on things, which is that level of collaboration, give and take, emergence, spotting a moment, naming that moment helping that thing to grow and uh, and theater wasn't providing that in the same way. And mm-hmm. so when I, I took one class in grad school, my last semester of grad school on the history of games and that class changed my life. Um, mm. It was the class that introduced me really to the idea of agency and the idea of being able to make meaningful choices inside of a storytelling world. And that idea is sort of the foundation of, of how I work that we can tell stories together. Um, and that everyone gets to add into that story space and make choices about what that world that we're crafting actually looks like. And so mm. it's not some people performing and some people just watching that thing happen. Everybody is in the same space together. No one's pretending otherwise. And that mm. feels like very rich and active territory, both because I think we make really interesting work when we're really deeply listening to each other. And yeah. also because it's a training ground in these, these play spaces for who we want to be and how we want to show up. And so yeah. there's a level of uh, we get to pretend a little bit together. That means that I get to potentially pretend into a version of myself that I would like to be. Mm-hmm. And with the right constraints and the right people in the room, that can be incredibly empowering. And yeah. that makes it easier for me to go off and do that in the rest of my life because I've already done it. And so I know what it feels like. It gets me over that first hurdle. Um, and so that that really that has become, I think, a central part of the, the way that I work. And I owe so much to my, my one professor of game design who took a look at some of my early work. I had no background in games. I didn't know what I was doing at all. And he said, this is really weird and you should keep doing it. Mm. And I owe him so much for those two sentences because it wasn't correct in terms of how people make games. It was against the norm. And he didn't try to encourage me to, to fit into what already existed. He was just encouraging me to follow the way that that play was speaking to me. And I offer mm. that. Wow. What a um a deep explanation about games. Like I never okay, because when you're thinking about entertainment, it's very much that there is the viewer, the receiver, and then there's like the giver. And what you've just articulated is the difference between like traditional entertainment and theater or movies or ballet or whatever you have, sports, that with with games, 
that you actually are creating the opportunity for everyone to be engaged. And there isn't any special talents that anyone particularly needs to have to be featured. Like everyone is a feature. And, and to that point, that gives everyone agency in, in that beingness, I guess, in the game. And I never would have articulated that way or even conceived of it, conceptualized it that way. Yet that's exactly the uniqueness about play and having this gaming you know, environment. And, and one aspect I want to dig a little bit deeper into, um, you were talking about, um, and it's kind of slipped my mind, but I'll just kind of go from what I'm feeling into is, oh, what was it that you created? That was the question. What was the weird game that you created that your professor was just like, okay, this is onto something. I would love, I'm curious, what, what could that have been? There were, there were two games I made in that class and that was the response to both of them. But the first one is actually directly a game about metaphysics. Um, okay. and so this was sort of also like one of my first explorations of metaphysics. This was back before I in any way identified as a philosopher or thought that there was space in that world for me. I absolutely did not think that then. Um, yeah. so I was really, I found myself really curious about if it was possible to make an infinite tabletop game. Um, so like theoretically, you know, if you had the right amount of energy and, and resources and things, you could have a video game that goes forever, something like Tetris. You know, you could just, given the right skills and things, you know, you could just go forever. Um, That's my favorite so, game. I love Oh, it's so brilliant. Yeah, so simple, so brilliant. <laughs> and so that is that is what we call an infinite game. And so infinite games, this is also one of my favorite sort of like philosophy meets games things. I promise I'll, I'll answer your question, but the... Um, oh. There's uh, a philosopher called James P. Karst, who is just a brilliant thinker in the space of play. And so he sort of differentiated between infinite games and finite games. And finite games are like you were describing before, something like sports or most video games or tabletop and board games, which is that we are playing in order to end the play. We're yeah. Playing to get to the end, to figure out yeah. who wins. So the goal is to get there. It's not about the journey. It's about the destination. Yeah. And infinite games are sort of the opposite of that. They are games that we play to keep playing. And so what does it mean to actually invite more play or swap out the players or change the rules in order to keep the play playful and going? So much more complex in a lot of ways, but also sort of a simple idea that we are just always players in the world, always playing. And so, so I think I hadn't actually read anything about this yet, but I... Like I had no idea who this philosopher was at the time. He just explains it beautifully. Um, so I found myself wondering if I could just make a tabletop game that goes on forever. And so I was, I took the material around um, Erwin, Erwin Schrodinger's uh, experiment, metaphysical thought experiment of Schrodinger's cat, which is basically the idea that you have this cat. The cat is in a bunker and inside of the bunker are some there's different versions, but essentially like radioactive isotopes that may or may not have gone off and killed the cat. We don't know. And so the cat is in that bunker, either alive or dead. And in this moment, before we open that lid, we are in this state of metaphysical uncertainty. We know that it's got to be one or the other, but in this moment, the cat is neither alive or dead and also both alive and dead. And so it isn't until we use our agency and actually open that box that we conflate that paradox into a reality but that reality reality always existed probably 
right? And so there's this just like really interesting thought experiment around what our actions mean in terms of metaphysics. And so I made this little tabletop game inside of a mint tin uh, called Schrodinger's Cat, a game of curiosity. And it's for two players or two teams. And if you and I were playing together, we would have these little tokens. And uh, which of these, just tell me which of these speaks to you. Would you rather be the cat wrangler or the scuba master? The cat wrangler. Great. So if I am the scuba master in this scenario, Artistic Liberties, then I'm going to take a look at our little cat token, which we've got in our game, and we'll have named our cat by now. And so we've, we've got a little cat, it's going in the bunker, and I have to decide uh, which of these two scuba gear sets is going to go into this bunker with the cat. One of them has cat poison in it, and the other has oxygen. And so I'm picking if there's, a, if there's cat poison in that tank or oxygen in that tank. Okay. The trick is that the, whatever the other one is will fill up the rest of the bunker. So I'm just deciding where the poison goes and where the air goes. And you as the cat wrangler are putting a token into the bin, into this uh, little tin to decide which of the air our cat is gonna breathe. Is it gonna breathe out of that scuba tank or is it gonna breathe freely uh, in the, the air of the bunker? And once we've made those decisions, we put them in, we close up the tin, we put a little sticker over it to keep it shut. And then we try to close the paradox. And so these tokens are actually made out of rice paper. And so whichever token we didn't make, whichever token we didn't use, we stir it in a little glass of water and it disappears. And so there's this permanent collapsing of realities that happens in the game. And then we live with our choices for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and that's the whole game. <laughs> That is incredible. So, I mean, so there is no winning or losing, I guess, in these games, which really kind of fucks me up. Like, I'm just like, okay, so who won? Like, I was literally about to say that, but then I was like, but there is no winning or yeah. losing, which is beautiful because when you think about a metaphysical path, like there is no, and I talk about this all the time, like competition in many ways doesn't exist. Like the winning or losing, like there's no such thing because- I mean, we're all in this together, period. Like we're all connected. Like if you think about all of these aspects. So to think about creating games with that same intention in mind is really leading edge, which is why I fuck with you to begin with. And so to, to think about how you bring this out into the world is like the next step, which obviously is what your company is doing. So I'd love for you to start getting to how you go from, okay, conceptually doing this theoretically in school to actually, I want to, to monetize this, to, to really bring it out into the world, and especially to human beings who are behaviorally programmed the exact opposite of this and, and, and actually may even be frustrated with something like what you've proposed because I mean, like, it's just so different. Yeah, that's essentially why I started a company is that I was starting to take this game in particular seriously. I was like, what if I published this game? What would happen? What would that look like? And someone in the space told me, you should have a company. You have a destructible one-time use game. You might get sued, <laughs> you know, like, don't let them come for you. Let them come for the company. And so that was sort of like at least one of the big impulses to actually just start to, to form a company was just a little bit of like, oh, yeah, if I'm taking this seriously, I probably want to protect myself a little bit um, okay. and make sure there's a little bit of distance between these ideas and these vulnerabilities and and what is actually accessible. Um, yeah. 
and so that's where the company sort of comes in and like just is that nice little controlled buffer space. And, and I think that's one of those places where I'm like, yeah, this is a good level of control. There are some things that want that buffer space, um, but it isn't overly controlling a space. So I started, uh, I started making them. I started hand making these games. I did that for a really, really long time um, and started exploring this idea of what it's like to live in uncertainty through a number of different modes. And so I, I gave a TED talk on, on this, uh, or TEDx talk on this topic and uh, made some sort of surprising choices in that, choices I wasn't even sure I was gonna make when I stepped on stage. And so there was always this sort of level of emergence and uncertainty that I, I find myself feeling very alive in, even though it scares the absolute bejesus out of me. Um, and so I think putting myself into these spaces of uncertainty is a big part of the model and what makes me stay in this space is that I don't want to ask anyone else to do something that I'm not willing to do myself or haven't done myself or that someone isn't expressly asking for. Um, and so I think that becomes sort of a part of the, the fabric of, of how this becomes a business is that it, it really sort of does look at what people actually need and, and really asks the question, do we know, do you know what you need? Because if you don't, let's figure that out. That's an okay thing. And so some of the immersive experience work that I do and the games that I do really ask that question in a number of different ways. You are sitting in a space of uncertainty. How do we start to figure out how to make that feeling a little bit more comfortable so that we don't block ourselves off from all of the possibility? Yeah. In that space of uncertainty, the desire to collapse the possibilities, right? And come and bring that paradox back down into one lane of certainty is so tempting. It's so yeah. tempting. Yes. And so if we do that too soon, then we tend to go with the first thing that comes to us, right? Or the thing that we get, we get frustrated and we're like, this is the safest route, I'm just going to take it. And so we lose some of the ability to be intentional and creative if we're feeling panicked when we don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. And so, you know, Schrodinger's cat is one way of, of exploring that. People have been playing that game for years, passing tins back and forth, you know, whenever they get together for coffee or opening it on their one-year wedding anniversary or someone hid them in a ceiling tile. So there's all this possibility for creativity and connection and staying connected to the people that you play with that comes from actually having a moment after that game to sit because you've just been posed with the idea that you have to live with these decisions for the rest of your life. And so the game for that one really begins when the game ends. You know, that's where the play really starts and becomes very emergent and about those connections and asking people to really think, how, what are you gonna do in this circumstance? How do you wanna show up here? And so I think that is, uh, that became, once I was seeing people really engage with that prompt, that's really what prompted me to want to make more of these. And so I made, uh, I started an immersive experience about philosophy. It was essentially a pop-up philosophy museum called Know Thyself. And people would come to this museum and I would be their tour guide. And the choices that they would make would determine what we did next. And so we would all go to the first gallery together. Um, it's sort of like walking into a museum, an art museum, but instead of paintings on the wall, there are games and those games explore a different philosophy. And so we would play a game in a gallery and then the choices that the players would make in that game would help me to see what game we needed to play next. So like one of them was Schrodinger's cat. And if they chose to open the box and find out if the cat was alive, then we want to explore what it's like to sit in uncertainty. If they chose to keep that box closed and not open it up, then we're going to explore what it's like to make decisions and to stick with those decisions. And there would be two different games about those two things based on two different philosophies. And so out of that experience, which is a, a really, I loved running that piece. That piece was a really beautiful 
a really beautiful thing to run. Um, there was a gift shop at the end. And so I started selling games. I started selling these philosophy games, um, some of which we played in the piece and some of which belonged at home and were too long or, or too complex to play in an immersive experience. And so it really came from this, uh, both having like having already had a curiosity about philosophy, that grew into an immersive experience where I got to explore that more deeply and with a really tight feedback loop of having people in space playing games, responding immediately, responding to each other, forming these connections, exploring what their philosophies meant to them. And then from there, sort of traveling back to having these artifacts, these actual take-home physical games. And so from there, it was probably another year before I actually fully did, did a full manufactured run to the point where I actually had stock. So it's really just that, that time bound step by step by step. Am I still interested? Is it still working? I've playtested this piece enough. I know these games work. And so just really, again, listening to the people in the space and making sure that, that these, these different games answer these questions that we have about different philosophies, what it means to be moral in the world. Um, what it means to contend with unconscious bias and always leading with play and seeing how it feels to, to be able to explore those things without feeling shame that we haven't forgiven that already. Yes. And that's the part that I really want us to kind of build on is the implications it has for opening people's soul. And, and you, you're, I mean, you even named the, the gallery exhibition, Know Thyself. And Everything you've shared is really encouraging people to question themselves, question their choices, question who they are, uh, you know, live with their decisions, take accountability. A lot of the, the, the emotional work that we don't often get to do out in the real world, surprisingly. And so I really want to explore that aspect because you're calling, I mean, you've called it metaphysics, you call it philosophy, and it's it's so many different things, but it's really what we're expected to do as souls on this planet. And so I, I really want us to start to explore, you know, the 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 inspiration behind that. Because, you know, even what you did in grad school, like that is incredible at a young age to, to really be ex encouraging people to explore these deeper questions and these deeper issues through play. So can you talk a little bit about that inspiration and, and how you got there? Yeah, I think, I think some of it is knowing what it's like to lead a serious life mm -hmm. and knowing what it feels like to not have play has it is sort of just in my in my bones from the time I was little and and I want to I want to help build a world in which we are actually able to solve problems through play and open up that space of creativity and I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of ways in which this question of like how we care for each other has been around since I was young um when I, I've been a vegetarian since I was 12 and really? uh, yeah and vegan for about 10 years but when I was when I was 12 the the thing that sort of tipped me over was uh, being at a friend's house and and her dad had just been hunting. And so there was a deer carcass hanging from a tree and I'd never seen anything like it before. And it just hit my heart so massively uh, to see, to see, you know, I was, I was 12. So animals are always beautiful, but especially at 12, you're like, not the woodland creatures, you know? Um, and so I think that, that also opened up this space early on of how do we, how are we showing up for others in a way that I can sort of systematically change and so there's a million ways in which we do this with human animals as well. But just as as one example of that, um, this this question of how we how we care for lives and what it is like to engage in systems in which 
uh, in which we don't necessarily always have a say, has sort of traveled its way as it has for so many of us all the way through to adulthood, to a place where you kind of get to have more agency and make more choices. And so those 12 years as a vegetarian led to 10 more years as a vegan, as I learned more and got to shape and control the way that I spend my time and the way that I, what I do with my body over all of these years. So I think this growing level of agency and awareness and ability to care and sort of not just sitting in what feels good enough, but seeing yeah. where I have to level up and take more action over time. Um, yes has felt like a, like a systematic shape in my life. Try to move this way. Just always try to move, move upward a little bit and make sure that you're doing a little more caring and more learning step-by-step-by-step. By step by step. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if that exactly answered your, your question. Um, oh yeah. Sorry. I, yeah, there is that sort of led into some of the, um, some of these, these questions of work, because when, uh, when I first found out sort of in, in that adulthood arc about this philosophical, uh, idea and metaphysical idea of panpsychism, it sort of built on, on these things that have been growing and boiling and, and growing again for decades. Um, and it is this idea that everything has a soul. So people have a soul, animals have a soul, this computer I'm sitting in front of has a soul, the screen has a soul, all of the pixels have souls. And so as a practical philosophy, it is not super helpful, right? Like, what do I do with that information? Yeah. Kind of nothing. But as a way of being in the world as a baseline, the idea that everything has a soul, that everything has care, um, this world of like animism and Shintoism that fits all of this bill. And so I think that has been a, a way in which I have I have sort of structured and felt deeply inspired in my life. Just believe as a baseline that everything matters, but that I don't have to hold it so tightly the way that I did as a kid. Everything matters and I don't have to control it. Everything matters and I can release it into the world and be a part of it and be a part of that agency without feeling um, like I have to either disengage or, or be totally in charge of a situation. So that both the, those growth arcs and that experience of unfolding and folding back in again and feeling like, where can I open up over time? How do I open up wider? How do I give myself the grace to come back in? Those sort of personal experience have, experiences have been the kinds of things that I think helped me to, to do this work as a designer, as a coach, um, of our, always having an eye on what that actually feels like in my body when those moments happen so that I can help others to identify those things or create games that uh, sit in these moments of deep openness and the other and others in moments where we're feeling closed off because the play looks really different in those spaces. Um, and so there's, this is yeah, it's sort of an abstract answer, but I think that that shape and flow of the world feels like, feels very inspiring to me. And like a thing that, that comes into the way that I design very often. That is beautiful because essentially you are allowing the game to be what it is to the individual, period. And, and that is actually the antithesis of what games have been designed to do. They've all been designed with a specific outcome in mind and a, a specific behavior that must be adopted to actually succeed in that said game, if you will. And so what you are you know, exploring and what you've beautifully sort of explained is that your own amorphous journey has created this expansion for you and you are creating games that can allow for that same expansion within, within individuals, whatever that may look like. And 
oh my God, this is so beautiful. Because as you start to, you know, for example, let's talk about what you did at South by Southwest where um, you had the meetup. And I think you even, did you, did you guys play a game at the meetup too? Okay. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I want our listeners, our viewers to be able to get a sense of what these immersive game experience can look and feel like. And then we can talk a little bit more about how it maybe have the outcomes for some of the individuals involved. That'd be cool. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that this, the, the game we made for South by Southwest was tailored towards a very specific uh, end without, while well, leaving that emergence for people to find each other. So it's a small audience, a small agency meetup. So it's for people who run small agencies who want to meet other people in small agencies so that they can essentially team up and go after big fish. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it is this space where we want to make sure that people are meeting the kinds of people that they can pair up with in the future, that they are getting a chance to circulate and meet a lot of folks um, so that they can make those connections deeper over time. But we only have an hour with them. So that's not a realistic goal for this moment. But we want them to get a really good sense of each other and then mm -hmm. be able to move through a conversation. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, I, I'm sure you have actually, Erin, been in a room where you find it difficult to extract yourself from a conversation. Um, or something is actually so interesting that you are having an amazing time with one person and don't meet anybody else. Yeah. And those are beautiful experiences. Yeah. yeah. But but then, you know, that conversation can kind of happen at any time in the future. So how do we incentivize the sort of mixing and mingling and also the ability to walk away from people if you're like, you're amazing and we're never going to work together. Have, an, have a great rest of your event. See you around is a perfectly reasonable Thing to feel in especially in these networking sessions and so our game uh pairs people up they they choose cards with their abilities things that they have to give and what their needs are and those were all these beautiful little cards that my collaborator amy hua made and they're all food based so if i need a graphic designer i might have um, peanut butter and if i have graphic design skills i might have the jelly card and so i'm just looking for these pairings in space and so without even having to start a conversation i can see like, ah, that is a person that I should meet. Looks like they had the thing that I am looking for. And people can find me based on my needs and what I have to offer because we're all so multifaceted. We do so many things. We need so many things that we wanted to make sure that there was breadth there. And so it gives people this opportunity to ask one deep question, which we made some of these deep questions on the back of the, the cards that they could choose from. There are some really safe ones for folks who are not as well versed in this or as comfortable or for whatever reason, don't want to ask about people's deepest, darkest secrets. Um, so yeah. you can ask a question about, you know, essentially like a, a lightly more philosophical version of what brought you to graphic design. Or you can ask them about, you know, if you really want to know, like, how are we going to work together? You can ask a process-based question. Like, what was the hardest thing you ever had to redesign? What were you, you know, sad to give up and have to rework? And so there, you can sort of choose your own adventure for these questions that you want to know more. One question is all you're asked to do, and then you have this freedom to part exchange cards and part ways. And you've already formed this little memory, this little bubble, and then we leave it at that. And so that was that game. It was built for that very specific environment. Um, mm -hmm. And you're asking sort of about some of these outcomes. We've definitely yeah. had a lot of feedback that people have yeah. found through this workshop. We, we've, we run this particular session twice. We're hoping to do it for a third year. We had a massive line down the hall. We couldn't even get everybody in. So I think that desire to be playful in spaces that often feel high pressure um, and high uh, high uncertainty is is definitely resonating with folks, and so we've been we've been seeing that and feeling that and experiencing that for a couple of years with these kinds of works, and then in the more involved work of something like Know Thyself, which gets very uh, 
much heavier because you are you are playing games for 75 minutes with a group of people. Um, I had people leave that space uh, doing all kinds of wild things. Like I've had people leave it and, and delete all of the contacts in their phone, which is a thing that you are prompted to, to do if you choose a certain pathway. You never have to do it. We will never make you do it. Uh, lots of people would like delete a couple of X's, feel free and walk out of the space. A couple of people just deleted everyone. And they're like, yeah, let's figure this out. Let's go all in. Let's live in the uncertainty, not knowing who's going to text me at any time, which is wild, right? That's a wild thing to do. But sometimes we crave wildness and who's going to give us that permission? Yeah. Unless it's through play. Um, and so we, I've had people walk out of that experience. And I remember one person in particular leaving the room and I had been tracking her throughout the piece and thinking, I think she's with me. I think she's with me, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think she's with the piece and not, I can usually tell really easily if someone isn't involved and then find a way to rope them back in um, very gently. But she, she stopped at the door. She was like, thank you. And then she left and then she came right back in and she said, can I ask you a question? I said, yes. And she said, how do you sleep at night? And I panicked and I was like, oh no, the piece is terrible. She hated it. She means, you know, like, how do you charge money for this crap? And so I, I sort of joked it off. I was still sort of lightly in character in that moment um, and then gave her my email address. And, and she emailed me the next day and turns out what she had meant by that really was there's this piece opens up space for darkness and space for us to talk about the, the things that scare us. How do, you, how do you hold that time after time of being in this space and, and holding space for people to, to bring forth to the light the ways in which we are not living up to our own standards, the fears we have about what's happening to the environment or to, to groups of people when they come together? How do you hold space for, for how sad we all feel sometimes about not being able to, to be philosophically up to par all of the time? Yeah. We had this kind of lovely conversation about about what it's like and the importance of of creating those spaces um, mm. and making sure that we we don't have to pretend all the time that all is well and that we can have a safe and communal space to explore the possibility that of growth and mm. that it's going to give us a couple of steps towards growth. So I think really depending on what the circumstances are and what the project is geared towards, with immersive experiences in play, you can tackle all kinds of challenges, right? Everything from how do I network? This is so scary to how do I, how do I become a more, a more moral person? Or how do I even figure out what rules I'm trying to live by and whether or not I am indeed living by those rules. So there's, there's a wide spectrum, I think, of what, what play allows for. Yes. And that's the part I didn't quite consider when I started this conversation with you, because when I'm thinking about play, I'm thinking about joyful times and, and happy moments and laughter. Yet at the same time, what you've just, um, and what your, your um, guest uh, lifted up for you was that the play created some, or lifted up some emotions of maybe of, of grief, of, of anger, of anxiety, of emotions that we really wouldn't normally associate with play. And, and that to me is very interesting because we are a full spectrum of all of these emotions. And though we are always arcing towards higher emotions, these other emotions are definitely part of our being and should always and often be acknowledged, you know, when they exist. And so what then about the play 
creates this type of awareness? And, and how do you feel about that? Because it seems like you've, you've accepted that that's part of it. But at the same time, how do you reconcile play with sadness? That's a great question. I think, I think for me, the two hardest things to pair in that space are grief and playfulness. And for many years, I was like, do these things play together? How is that even possible to be in a grief yeah. space and a space of play at the same time? Yes. I've never felt less playful than when I am grieving. And at the same time, as I started working with more um, climate scientists and climate educators and climate justice educators in this space, it, it started to become clear to me that whether or not it feels impossible, it has to be possible. Yeah. Because we are in a space where there is deep uncertainty about what happens in the world right now. Yeah. And we are actively grieving the loss of a future for a planet that we won't have, right? Even as there is possibility for what will be and something will be. And so how do we hold this grief for what won't be at the same time that we must, in order to have a future, hold this sense of possibility and creativity in order to shape a world that will be. And so oh. there has to be grief and play together. Otherwise yes. we can't thrive. And so it, it, that really helped me to hone in on that question, the meaning of and importance of that question, rather than letting it sit in a theoretical space. And so I think, uh, I think that's why this, the breadth of emotions feels really important to this experience of, of play, that we're not just seeking escapism, we're not just seeking fun. And fun is amazing. Fun is, fun is so important in play and in games. So is satisfaction. Right. So is that moment of challenge or fear where I'm where I've like I've won something, uh, even if I'm not feeling joyful in that moment, I'm feeling this overwhelming and overpowering emotion of satisfaction and pride. And those things are all all matter so much. And so I think when we're looking at this space, it's really this question of have I moved through something yeah. um, and have I gotten past the obstacle? If I'm still facing the obstacle, I'm feeling tension, yes. which is good. That's a big part of games. But then do I actually get a chance to move through it? Or not? Do I get do I get stopped and stifled in this moment, or stuck irrevocably? And if mm. the play and the game is designed properly, then we're always moving through things. We're always moving through things, and so then we get these moments of of relief or community, or we did this thing together. I could never have solved this puzzle alone, but in this play space, we did it together. And then we have this moment of coming together over having done a hard thing, mm. and so that is deeply can be a deeply playful experience. Um, and also, I think part of it is seeing play in the things that we don't always see play in. Like for me, yeah. reading is play. Listening to music is play. Classical music has my brain spinning out images and, and textures and thoughts in a way that nothing else does. And for me, that is a playful experience. And, and it wouldn't be for everybody. And so figuring out what our own internal sense of play and drive is, I think helps us to, to know when we need the kind of play that lets us have pure, unadulterated silliness versus the kind of play where we have, we wanna learn a specific thing and we wanna make that thing as joyful as possible. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think it's tricky, right? Like those things, they, they can't happen, I think at exactly the same time. So mm -hmm. I'm probably not going to feel, this is all a draft statement, but I'm probably not gonna feel like a, a playful grief within you know a two second span of time but I can move through grief with play in the way that the next time I circle back to grief, it has loosened and released. And there are now these memories of joy and connection and community and playfulness that have happened right alongside it that softens the grief and makes it less of a hard thing. And so I think those things really weave in and out of each other um, in ways that we don't always allow for. We wanna keep those things separate. 
but actually they really belong in conversation with each other. This is some deep work right here. I love this conversation. I'm, I, honestly, my brain is like, you know what I'm saying? Like, because I I really am starting to ima imagine things that, like you said, don't go together, going together. And this is essentially what the metaphysical journey and path is, is really starting to unlock aspects of ourselves that we really are afraid to even acknowledge um, because of on, oftentimes the pain associated with it. Yet when you're coming to it and going through it with play or with something that's a bit more pleasurable, then you're able, like you said, to loosen up the or unravel the yarn strings a little bit and, and make it much more tenable or a much more approachable um, conversation, approachable feeling, approachable, approachable way of being. So this is really beautiful healing work. And I think what you were... The, this question of metaphysics comes into that in so many ways but one of the big ones is just that we're looking at you know we're looking at reality we're looking at how things are yes and we feel complexity we feel grief we feel sadness and we need to find ways through those things and so yes. if that is the way that the world is right now or is for us sometimes then it is a reality that we want to contend with and so that for me feels so deeply tied to metaphysics is really looking at what is and not trying to pretend we're already six steps ahead or mm -hmm. just be in a world of, of pure imagination. Again, imagination is the best. It's the best. And I love it, but that is like a part of the world. And so if we want those things to be able to meet together sometimes, then we need to start with where we actually are. Yes. And that comes into the games and the play and the coaching and all of these worlds in which we're really helping to, I think, nail down, where are we right now? Let's name it. Let's not feel shame about it as much as we can't, or like, it's actually, that's not at all correct feel free to feel shame about it. And let's move, let's move through those things. Let's make sure that they don't fall into the shadows. And how, how are we going to be playful and open up space for those things to happen? And so, yeah, we haven't gone into a great detail about like what the games look like. They're all, you know, we have a little bit for, for Schrodinger and for, for know thyself. Um, but that's what, what it, all the work looks like essentially is like, what is the right game, the right play, the right onboarding to make this thing possible sort of varied by, who's coming into the space, how they're feeling in that moment, how we're meeting them where they are so that we can actually grow and go somewhere on a journey, whether they're getting stuck somewhere that where we're not there yet. And so it's hard to get anywhere else because there's no path. We're sort of isolated. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and I love that you brought up this point about being where we are, because a lot of my metaphysical conversations, I'm always imagining, visioning, talking about the multidimensionality of things, of course, it can be a very, um, a conversation not steeped in the now moment, okay? Yet what you're bringing up and oftentimes, not oftentimes what metaphysics is, is and all we have as human beings is the now moment and, and who we are right now. And, and so much of our culture, so much of our, our societies is all about getting to the next thing. And you even talk, just bringing us back to the original point around games, getting to the end goal, winning, figuring out a strategy to beat someone or get ahead. And this is really, you know, the reverse of all of that. You know, how do I come back to where I am? How do I figure out how I'm feeling now to think about what I would like to do for my next step? You know, and really starting to come back into the body, which is essentially the metaphysical work is bringing all of this multidimensionalism into this physical body that's right here. Like, being 
And and so I, I feel like what you're doing is really, again, like it's leading edge. You know, we do have a few more minutes. I would love for you to sort of talk a little bit about kind of what maybe you're working on now in your in your current, you know, um, work with your company. Maybe even talk a little bit about what the company is um, so that people can get a sense of how they can tap in with it. Yeah, absolutely. The, the company is called I Can't Go On Plays. It is such a deep cut philosophy pun. I feel like there's like four people out there that that joke is for and they love it. And then everyone else, I'm like, I'm really sorry. That's so convoluted. But here we are. Um, but essentially, it's like a play on the... Yeah, it's called I Can't Go On. Uh, so it is like uh, like wordplay around the empiricism of Immanuel Kant, who was just like, there is a right and a wrong. That's art. <laughs> Yeah, and Zen cons, right, which is so up for interpretation and time and spaciousness and thinking things through and letting it become embodied, so wildly different things. So how do we keep going on in the world uh, of absolutes when we seek expansiveness and need expansiveness in order to go on? I um, love it. Thank you for explaining yeah. Oh, anytime. <laughs> Um, so the company makes uh, essentially like interactive work of various forms. So work where the audience is really at the center of the experience. Um, and so we do immersive theater productions where we are live and in space and crafting an environment of play. And so those are those are things that we make in-house. For the most part, we do when we work with other with other companies to help make their dreams of immersive experiences become a reality and coach in that space to help folks be able to find the center and figure out how to reach an audience and not just sort of um like name or a play at that because it's so easy to to think that we're doing that without actually checking in with the audience first so a real philosophy around making sure that we are we are being deeply uh emergent and listening to the people that this piece is for including the creators um and we do we have a we do a lot of that as gameplay so we call a lot of that playable theater because the theater needs the audience in order to happen unlike passive plays that could happen even if an audience isn't there and, yeah. um, and we do a lot of different kinds of gaming. So some of the tabletop games, we have this suite of seven philosophy games. Um, and each one explores a different philosophy, mostly by um, like female and nonconformist philosophers who often don't get mentioned in the canon or don't get a, a lot of attention. Um, and so those are, are all games about, there's games of metaphysics, uh, free will, um, moral ambiguities, all of these games sort of based on things that feel familiar like Truth or Dare or Bingo or uh, Never Have I Ever. Um, or a couple, and there's a couple of others that are, are very different than that. Really just asking us, you know, who are you and how do we figure this out through play? There's an anarchy game that you can play for up to three years if you want to, um, or you can play it in five minutes. So there's a lot of different styles of gameplay. And there's a, a game that's essentially like an anti-philosophy debate game because I got really tired of debating with, uh, to be honest, like 100% cis white male philosophers, and they just needed to win the conversation. And so I made a, an anti-debate game where the only way to win is to change your own mind about something. And so it's not about this external force of like, I'm going to be right. I'm going to get somebody else to change their mind. The only way you can, you can win this game is to go deep and change your own mind. Um, and it's called a uh, paradigm shift for lemons because we start small. Can you change your mind about a lemon? And then sort of grow up from there. And those game tokens are made out of seed papers. So you can take these ideas when you do change your mind and plant them in the earth and watch them grow up into wildflowers. So there are always these bridges between, you know, how do we have the physical world reflect these changes that we make in ourselves and honor these experiences that are hard for us. Um, so they're, they're very unconventional tabletop games. You know, they're all communal and cooperative. Um, 
And then we do work in the, we have a mobile app that'll be coming out that is a, a five-day immersive experience that you play with a stranger and form a connection with a stranger that'll be coming out probably next year. Um, and we work on um, a bunch of different kinds of projects that are ranging from individual solo play all the way up to projects we've consulted and designed with that have hit, you know, half a million people at a time. And so really sort of running this gamut and working with the National Park Service on games about climate change and eco-grief and what it's like to contend with people who don't believe the same things that we believe. How do we empathize mm. with that? You know? And so there's a series of conversation games that we work on that can be played on trails, in lobbies, in the car when you leave a park that are that are sort of geared towards this opening up of trying to understand how people think differently than we do um, and what it's like to sort of give grace for that so that we can talk to each other and not feel like we put a wall up immediately. Uh, yeah. So that's sort of what the company does is that we do a lot of work that we create ourselves and we do a lot of work with clients and consultations in order to find the play in these serious and complex works and subject matter. And the piece that we're working on right now that uh, that opens on September 3rd of this year is uh, a piece called Tea Party at the End of the World. And it is a playable theater piece. So it is this immersive experience that will probably ultimately have a game, a more uh, outside game attached to it. But for this run, we are inviting uh, a small audience into the space. So no more than 15 people at a time. And I'm essentially hosting a really strange tea party for them um, that is based on this residency that I did up in the Arctic Circle over the fall, which was, you know, being up uh, in north of Svalbard, so right around uh, the 80 degree uh, latitude mark where it is, it is cold, it is isolated, it is beautiful, and there was no one else there. And so we were there at the end of the world, watching things that we hear about being the end of the world, watching these glaciers calve, listening to the glaciers calve, hearing that thunder, that thunderousness, watching this world disappear. And also at the same time, very cozy, very communal, having this, uh, this very communal experience of these artists on a ship, artists and scientists together exploring these spaces. Um, and so that really deeply impacted uh, the way that I have been thinking about the end of the world. Whose world is ending? What does it mean for a world to end? What are the scales at which the world ends, right? The world isn't ending, it's changing. Yeah. Okay? And that happens to us every single day. Our worlds end and revivify and change. And so what does it mean? To, to have an end of the world. And so this yeah. piece is with that. Um, and so we're, we're asking ourselves these deep questions. We're playing these parlor games essentially about the end of the world and how we conceptualize it. And we're drinking these teas. We have these beautiful, beautiful teas from all around the world. And so they are tied into this experience where we are allowing ourselves to smell these beautiful things of the earth and taste them and sip them and have these really, uh, these really spacious moments and that we are always there together, hearing little bits and pieces of other people's experiences, drawing from them, being curious um, and releasing them. And so that piece is being built right now. So I have a really good shape of it and we're still shaping it. And so there'll be another couple of weeks of finding those nuances, figuring out which threads we need to find. And so I'm, I'm kind of deep in a very, very joyful and playful writing space right now with my collaborators where we are, we are actively doing this really complex problem solving around eco-grief human grief, everyday grief, change, um, and what it's like to leave space for an audience to feel any way that they need to feel while making sure that is a very safe space to be in. Um, and that we're not, we're not putting people into a space where they are being, where something is being asked of them that they don't wanna do, or they don't wanna give. Yeah. And making sure that there is, there is grace there. 
um, and also making it appealing, right? It has to be alluring to share a hard thing or we won't do it. And so that is also a part of the, the art of the play and the thing that we're doing now is making sure that it, it is going to feel exciting and enticing to share those things and to name those things for ourselves and to play these games. Yes. Um, and so that that is like that is the art of it, right? Like that is where those like years and years of expertise come in and like, okay, I know that's not gonna work because we tried it over there and it didn't do that thing. And so we're doing that really interesting communal problem solving, people problem solving right now. Oh my God. I'm almost like in tears over here because what is being everything, I've never heard these kinds of things before. <laughs> so it just gives me so much hope. Wow, to have people like you who are really just innovatively thinking about, about things, about being, about how we shift human behavior, shift human thinking, shift human consciousness in a way, like you said, with more grace, with more compassion, with more allowing, um, with more understanding in a safe space. And, and really without the morbidity of, of how we've been taught very normal things about our world and and the shifting of our world the shifting of narrative the shifting of climate the shifting of things everything is always so finite as as we started like we literally started this conversation with the same way that we're ending it and it's just, everything's infinite everything's ever evolving everything's changing and as are we and what you what you're doing and what you're creating is creating the space for that ever-changing beingness if you will. <laughs> and I love you for that so much. I, I, you, I admire your work. I admire you and, and your journey from serious little Jessica to now playful, you know, goddess Jessica and, and continue to send my light in support of who you are and what you're doing in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Erin. Thank you for holding this space. Thank you for posing such beautiful and thought-provoking questions and and giving space for both of our brains to come together and and play and expand and jump around and yeah it was it's been so lovely i am so deeply honored to to be here and to to be with your listeners as well i would be so happy to answer questions or talk things through also if you if you hear from folks so please feel free to, to reach out everyone Yes, and, and definitely please offer your um your contact information, your your social media, your website, how folks can stay in touch. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. You can find me. Uh my email address is Jessica at I-K-A-N-T-K-O-A-N.com. And that's the website as well. I-K-A-N-T-K-O-A-N.com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. And to all of our listeners and viewers, you know how to find us at the Metaphysics Millennial Podcast. Also, I am Erin Patton on Instagram, LinkedIn, Threads, <laughs> Facebook, all the things, YouTube. And we will see you on our next episode of the Metaphysics Millennial Podcast. Much love to you all. Peace. Did you really love this episode of the Meta Business Millennial Podcast? Well, I am honored, and I appreciate you subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing it with your friends. In the meantime, stay bright, my friends. Much love and light. Peace.